0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're looking again at First John. We were in First John last night, and today we're going to look at the conclusion of the First John. And I'm actually just going to read... Verse twenty and twenty one. We're going to come back to eighteen and nineteen, but <clears throat> this is the conclusion of the epistle. First John five verse twenty and twenty one. Um, and I would just encourage you, if you do have your Bible, um, turn to it because we're going to we're going to not going to stay in chapter five verse twenty. We're going to go through the epistle a bit, so we'll end with the conclusion. But First John five twenty. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus... You're the king of glory. We thank you that you came low and stooped down to save us and remembered us in our plight and came to visit us with salvation. We ask that you lift up our heads and our our hearts and our souls, fill us with wonder and praise. May we understand the gravity of this book. And may it compel us to follow you and to live lives of obedience and of love. We ask that you'd work here in our midst through me and pray that, Lord, your word would do its work in our hearts and sanctify us in the truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You've probably heard of this concept of six degrees of separation. And if you, you know, you go six degrees, you can, you know, you probably know somebody that's six steps from the president. And, you know, you talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. And, then, and I just remember, I shared this years ago, that one of my professors in seminary was Professor Lig Duncan. And Lig Duncan is the chancellor of RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, and he talks about when he was in Scotland and he was working on his doctorate and he was reading Irenaeus in his uh, book Against Heresies, which was written about 180 A.D., and he's sitting there reading it, and at one point in this little epistle, Irenaeus says he refers back to the elder and how the elder said that he was in the very presence in Smyrna in the same room where John had taught him. And so here you have John the Apostle, who is an eyewitness of Jesus, of his resurrection, of his birth, all that we're going to talk about here in 1 John. And here the Apostle John has written this. And then the elder is most likely Polycarp. And Polycarp is now training Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is now still being read. And this guy named Lig Duncan reads it over in Scotland. And now he teaches me and I'm teaching you. And you're not too far removed from this very book. Six degrees of separation from Christ himself. We know. There's a lot of we knows. The title is is we know, and and the last three verses are all the we know, we know, we know. And you should read the whole book to find out all that we know, because there's about 14 of them in the epistle. And there's all of these whole bunch of purpose clauses, or what we call henna clauses, It's the Greek word for in order that or so that. But every time you get to a that or a so that or an order, there's about 16 of those in 1 John. There's a lot of reasons why this book was written for the purpose and there were certain things that you would know. And the conclusion is, is that we would know that the Son of God has come because it's refuting people who were saying he hasn't come. He has come. And he's given us understanding so that, what is that? That's a henna clause, purpose statement, so that we might know him who is true. We are in him who is true. Who is this true about? We get three truths, this adjective true, three times. That's where we get aletheia, uh, the word for truth in the adjective form of that. We're in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. And then you have one of the most powerful statements to who Jesus is in the whole Bible. He is the true God and eternal life. You have to say, well, who's the he? Well, the he is always the closest antecedent. So what's the closest antecedent? You go back and, you, and it, it, it just was talking about Jesus Christ, he. It's him. And now he equates him He's the true God, and remember how the epistle began, if we remember last night, John is saying, I'm writing to you about the one who was with us. He, He was from the beginning, the word of life, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. He's not proclaiming to you eternal life. He's the eternal life. It's a person. The eternal life is Jesus, and it concludes with, he's the true God and eternal life. This life has always been, we just confess that in the Nicene Creed, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. The one who was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. All of that. He's true God, eternal life, and then he he just puts him right equal with the first commandment. Because the Jews were really big on in in the understanding that what's the first commandment, right? You shall have no idols. Don't don't make any idols, don't bow down to any idols, don't make up any graven images, no idols. And he just says, keep yourself from God's substitutes. Keep yourself from anything other than Jesus. He's the true God. He's the real deal. He is the substance. He is the fullness of the Godhead. It all dwells in him. And so Jesus is God is what he's gonna argue. And so what we're, we're seeing is that John is writing in the context similar to ours. John is writing about an exodus. And the exodus is not referring to the exodus where the Israelites are delivered supernaturally from the Egyptians, but the exodus that John's addressing is similar to the exodus that's happened in America in this now pandemic, post-pandemic, where people are saying, you know, sociologists and people that study the church, that the church has shrunk, from church attendance in per person in America, it's shrunk by roughly a third. So a third of the people that were here before the pandemic are now gone. And that's across America. And John is writing to something very similar. In 1 John 2.19, we're not told exactly what it is, but we're just told that there's been an exodus. And he just says, they went out from us, 2.19, for they were not of us, for they have they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, that they all are not of us. So if they were of us, they would have remained with us. So they're actually proven that they weren't really with us. And so he's, he's addressing this exodus. And this exodus that, that John is addressing is, that, is also because of false teaching. And the false teaching, he says in 1 John 4, 2 and 1 1 to 3, he says, For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In the Latin, incarnate. incarnate. He's come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So there was this false teaching that was spreading that he didn't really come in the flesh. Maybe it was a ghost, some type of phantom, but that he wasn't fully human. And there were just as many heresies that the early church had to deal with that Jesus wasn't fully a man as there was as many heresies that he wasn't fully God, but they had to deal with both. How could he be both God and man? Two natures, one person forever. And so what we see is that Jesus was being minimalized, mitigated, and marginalized. That's not a 21st century problem. It was a very real first century problem. And due to sin, it's been a problem in every century, is that Jesus tends to be minimalized and marginalized rather than maximized and exalted and crowned as king. And so John is writing this epistle to give assurance of salvation, and he's also dealing with false assurance of people that think they're saved, but they're not. And so he gives three tests in the book. There are three tests throughout this book, and he keeps repeating them, and some of them uh, are, are bound up in certain passages, all three together. But there's the doctrinal test, there's the love test, and there's the moral test. And so we're going to take the test this morning. And I thought, usually I like to have three, like, O's or, you know, the, it didn't really fit with orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopedeo. I thought, eh, it just sounds, we're just going to go with doctrinal test, love test, and moral test. But if you really want to go for orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopedeo, right walking, but... We'll we'll, we'll stop there. All right, so the three tests are really on this axiom of comforting the disturbed, those who are really burdened by sin, and they're wondering. They're truly Christians, but they don't think they're Christians because they're beaten up and wounded by sin, and there's some of you here this morning that you think, how can I be a Christian and have sinned the way that I have sinned and still be a Christian? And he's writing to give comfort to the disturbed. At the same time, he's also disturbing the comfortable. Those that are comfortable in their sin, those who are assured that they really are Christians, yet they're really not. They don't pray, they don't read God's word, they don't live out of this relationship with God and communion with him. They hold on to sin, they hold on to grudges, they hate certain people, they, they live in sin, they love sin, they, they think about sin, their minds talk about sin, their bodies and actions and ears and, and eyes. There's no restraint to say no to what God says no to. <clears throat> or to say yes what God says yes to. Yet they believe they're Christians, and they're not under conviction. But they have confidence, and yet they shouldn't. They are self-deceived. <clears throat> so consider these three tests this morning. As you think about 1 John, and he's saying, look, I know the Son of God has come. What difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference, because it should give you assurance. <clears throat> so let's take the test. The first is the doctrinal test. The orthodoxy test. If you look over at chapter 2, verse 22, he'll just, he just says, here's, here's some doctrine that's really important. 2.22, who is the liar but who, he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. So he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah, anointed one. So, the one who denies that is the liar. He's saying, This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. I mean, these are hard words, but this is what John is declaring. He's seen the Son, and he's declaring what he has heard from him. And he's saying, You can't have the Father and not have the Son. The one who denies the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you. There's another purpose. He's telling you why. About those who are trying to deceive you. There are some saying, don't worry about the Son. You just need to know the Father. And he's saying, wait a minute. We've heard Jesus say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's heard Jesus say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John five twenty three, 23, Jesus' lips. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if you don't like that verse, you don't like Jesus who said that very thing. You can't have different views about the Son as opposed to the Father. You can't love one and not the other. You must love both, honor both, and worship both. Look over at five, nine. same thing. He says in chapter five, verse nine, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God. So now he's saying this is God's testimony. This is what God has said about his son, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. It's making God a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. So it's pretty important that we believe about the son what the father believes about the son. <laughs> and he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you. Here it is again. So that you would have assurance I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's the doctrinal test. Test yourself. If you're saying you have assurance that you know you're going to heaven, you know you have eternal life, but you don't love Jesus, you've rejected God's testimony. You, You would flunk the test. But to pass the test is to believe what God has said about his Son and to honor the Son, and to love the Son, and to believe that He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, and He's come as a propitiation for our sins. Then the moral test. These tests are not easy. This is not, not going to, you know, if you're hoping this is just going to be a feel-good message, this is kind of a, First John kind of hits hard. First John 2.28, he says, here's the moral test. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears talking about when he appears again. It's the same word as manifesting himself. He's going to appear again so that when he appears, comes the second time, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. and he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So if you truly know him, the moral test is it leads to faith and repentance. And repentance is is a turning from self and following the flesh and all the fruits of the flesh and living in sin. There's a turning from that. Does it mean we're perfect? No. And he's going to address that in chapter 1. We'll come back to that, but doesn't mean you're perfect, and no Christian is, is perfect, we're not saying that, but if, there, if you just say, well, everybody's a sinner, and we all sin all the time, and that's all we do is sin, and error is human, and we just, and, we, and there's never a turning, and a repenting, and a following, and an obeying, then we've, we, don't, we don't pass the moral test, is that then we really don't know him, because if we truly know him, he's saying now God's seed abides in us, and now we abide in him. And we want to grow in this relationship with him. And this relationship with him leads to change. And our lives begin to change. I, was, I remember reading years ago in Ian e. Murray's book, somebody referenced it recently to me, that when the revival came, and I think it was the second great awakening, the, um, as, as people were getting converted, the animals stopped obeying. Because the animals only responded to cuss words. And so they were named cuss words, they were yelled with with cuss words, they were constantly cussed and kicked at. And as these people were getting converted, they changed the way that they treated the animals. And so the animals at first, they had to retrain the animals because the animals didn't know what to do, you know, because these people were changing and they, they they only responded to cuss words and they weren't cussing anymore because the people were repenting. Their lives were beginning to change. And so if the animals changed the way they changed the way they changed animals, that leads us to the next test, which is the love test. And in the love test, if you look at chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, it just says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or revealed, appeared. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that, another purpose statement, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who would pay for our sins on the cross and turn God's wrath and anger and hostility towards sin away from us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so, you know, we know that the key to a relationship, you know, if you say, what's the key to a relationship, you know, with a, with a spouse or with a parent, and a child, we, you know, we talk about quality time, quantity time, you know, you got to spend time with them. It's all about fellowship, right? Relationship. And John is writing the book. He says at the very beginning of the book, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim to you so that, there's another purpose statement, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The whole book is written so that you would have fellowship with Christ and with the Father, but it also means fellowship with one another. And he's writing these things, he says, so that our joy may be complete. And then he says, this is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So if we reject this message, he's saying this is the message we heard from him, from Jesus. So you're not just rejecting John or First John, you're rejecting Jesus. And then he, in First John, he gives five if we statements. So if you look at First John 1. Okay, we're continuing with these tests, but here's the if we statements. Because, you know, if we say we have fellowship and we do love him, and and yet he says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, there's the next if we statement, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can see how he's giving comfort to the disturbed, yet at the same time, he's disturbing the comfortable, those that think they've never sinned. He's saying, well, if you say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so John is kicking away the foundation of false assurance. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to admit you're in desperate need, that he's come to rescue. The whole point of of Jesus coming is just not because you just need some more information. And if he would just come in the flesh and deliver some more information, then you'd be okay. It's no, he, he has come in the flesh because you have to be rescued. You have to be saved. You need a savior. And Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And so he's kicking away the foundation of false assurance. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. But if you confess your sin, he will forgive you. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from sin. But now you have to walk in the light. And walking in the light, he's going to clarify what what that is. Because he's saying... If you say, well, if you just say, well, everybody's a liar, nobody's, nobody's lives change, you know, Jesus just, you know, came and just gave a blanket, died for everybody, and, and we don't really need to do anything with that. He's saying, no, you have to confess your sins, come into fellowship with him through the shed blood of his son on the cross to restore you to God, and now we begin to walk in the light. And then he tells you another purpose of writing the book. He says, I write these things to you, chapter 2, verse 1, in order that or so that you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. But if we do sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. Once again, he's giving comfort to the disturbed. He's a propitiation for our our sins, and not for ours only, not just for Jews, but for the sins of the whole world, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And here John is giving comfort and assurance to true Christians, those who don't think and they're wondering, is Christ enough? And John is saying, yes, Christ is enough. And then he proceeds back to those who think they're saved and are not, and they have a false assurance, and he tells them, and by this we know we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, chapter two, verse four, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we, may, we know, by this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. And so what does these commandments look like? Well, he, he clarifies in verse nine, chapter two. Whoever says he's in the light And hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in darkness does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let's just try to break this down real practical. Practically, if you claim to be walking in the light, then we must love our brothers and sisters, both in the body and outside the body. We're to love our neighbors. So practically, young people, and old people too, if you make fun of one of your classmates, you pick on somebody at work, you bully them, you join in on trashing them with others, you don't come to their defense, you don't rescue someone who's an image bearer of God, instead you enjoy laughing and mocking at at God's image bearer, what would John say? He'd say you're walking in darkness and that you need to repent because you're not in the light. And if you don't repent, then you're not a Christian. He's, and any, furthermore, if you ignore somebody, you think you're better than somebody, or you're a snob and you refuse to come alongside somebody because you think, well, I'm just on a, on a sociological, I'm on a higher plane than they are. I don't really need to talk to them at church or at school or in the neighborhood. I'm rather, you know, this person really bugs me. They're persona non grata to me. They're dead to me. They don't exist, or I wish they didn't exist. What would John say about that if you treat somebody like that? He'd say you're walking in darkness and not in the light. And if you're a believer, then you're going to repent of that, and you can't continue to live like that, otherwise you would fail the love test. So if you are his, there's going to be a change. Just as these people were saved through this revival preaching, and they changed the way they treated their animals. Well, if they change the way they treated their animals, how much more should we change how we speak to one another? And John digs further at this at the moral test. And he says, what do you love? If you love the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, he's going to tell you three things that worldliness is. The things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. You see, worldliness is basically feeding the flesh. It's basically just selfishness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the mind of the flesh, we are told by Paul, is death. It doesn't give life and peace. Rather, to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death. And those who sow to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption and not eternal life, is what he says in Galatians 6. So some of the things of the flesh and of the eyes, it's very subtle. It's not so obvious. When does shopping for clothes turn to feeding the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes? When does just time spent playing video games, when does it become a lust of the flesh and a lust of the eyes? When does just browsing Instagram and Facebook and TikTok videos, when does it cross over and become lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes? It's not always so obvious, but there are some things that should become obvious because when you start down the circle slide, it's a scary thing to have a remote control and a browser and, and, and and a mouse when nobody's around because the bottom end of this is that they tell us that the majority of the bandwidth of the internet is pornography. That's the majority of the bandwidth on the internet. So the, 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 the circle slide down and where people get kicked out to is they start following the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. I didn't, I used to frown at this translation of pride of possessions because the word is bios in Greek, and it, it just means life, and I thought, man, that's a bad translation. But actually, when I've cross-referenced this word, when it says pride of possessions, guess what, what it refers to? So you, you, you start clicking on these references, and they all referred to livelihood. So For example, you remember the elder brother accuses the prodigal when he comes home and he says to his father, he has squandered your property, or another translation is devoured your livelihood. Same word, property, livelihood. It's the same word. When Jesus commends the widow's might, because the others contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all of her livelihood, put in all that she had to live on, her bios. She gave out of her bios, and she's commended. And so what John is saying in this love test is that if you truly love God, you share your bios. You share your livelihood. You share your possessions. This is one of the tests, because you look over at chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, his life, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods, the, the bios, same word, anyone who has this world's goods, sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so if we truly understand what the incarnation is all about, we get what J.I. Packer in his classic quote about the Christmas spirit and the Christian snob from Knowing God, when he says, we talk glibly of the Christian spirit, but it ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all the year round, it's our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, and he says, I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet their needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other, other side, he says, that's not the Christian spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, there are many whose ambition in life seems limiting to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. And Packer says the Christian's Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christmas snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their maker, live their whole lives in the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just for their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. And that all leads us to the conclusion of the book. The last three we-know statements. We know... that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, and this is referring to Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, it's referring to Jesus, the one who's been born of God protects him. And the evil one can't touch him, does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. <clears throat> and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding So that we may know him who is true, and we're in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The book ends with an imperative, which is really pretty shocking, because there's hardly, not many imperatives in the whole book of of John. Just read the first chapter and a half, try to find one, because you won't. They don't start until midway through chapter two, and there's only a few of them. But it ends with an imperative, Keep yourself from God's substitutes, from all that's false and fake, this is real and true and it's Jesus. And there are two kinds of people, those who live for themselves, those who who don't keep themselves from idols, they live for the God's substitutes, and as a result they keep on sinning and they're under the power of the evil one himself, the devil, but those who've come to know truly, to know Jesus Christ, they know the truth, they know the Son of God has come in the flesh, he's given them understanding and they know him who's true and they're in him who is true. And he is the true God and he's their eternal life and they love him and they they want to live for him. They want to tell others about him. They don't hold on to sin or grudges. They feel bad when they do those things and they repent. They don't live for lust. They don't live for hate. They found the real and true. And they don't need to look anywhere else and they don't want to look anywhere else. How about you? Are you walking in the light and walking in love? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have come and have given us understanding by your Spirit. Come have your way among us, for you are the King. We thank you, Lord, that these things are true, and we ask that, Lord, you'd help us and forgive us where we have failed you, where we have loved this world, the things of this world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lord, weed that out of us. Wean us from this world that we would love you in truth and in deed, that we love our neighbors, we'd be a blessing to others. We ask that you would rid the, the Christmas snob out of each of us, that we would be compassionate, humble believers as our Lord was. For we ask in your name, amen.